Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Tech Trends Podcast, where we discuss the latest manufacturing technology research and news. This episode is brought to us by, sponsored by MT360, the conference. A great lineup of speakers where we discuss the latest uh, transformative technologies, uh, specifically around um, new technologies, implemented use case, and how to drive partnerships so we can further enhance uh, the adoption of new technologies that further get a better return on investment. Uh, I'm excited for the event, probably because I was a content manager for the first uh, iteration, and it will be in Santa Clara Convention Center on May 12th through the 14th, 2020. Go to MT360 Conference to see the speakers and technology in the factory. I am Benjamin Moses, the Director of Manufacturing Technology. I'm here with... Manufacturing Technology <laughs> Analyst. <laughs> Thanks, Steve. Steven Lamarca. <laughs> I'm glad you're here today. AMT. That uh, I got to get used to talking about sponsored uh, content also. No, Man, I, I wanted to uh, see. I was really planning. I had actually planned that uh, that awkward uh, introduction for myself. Nice, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I just I do want to say MT360. I'm really looking forward to going to this it's next be great. year. Uh, it's, it's it's it is going to be great, and yeah. it's going to be fun. Um, and we're going to see a lot of cool stuff. It's going to be like a different take on. Uh, it's it's like a smaller IMTS, but more on like you know the data and the back end, and yeah, more the integration true. and stuff yeah. like that. So yeah, speaking of which. Uh, we talk about advancing technology, so I'm looking for a new smart vacuum cleaner. Oh yeah, uh, I'm the one I have. It's labeled. It's considered a dumb vacuum cleaner. It, right. It's kind of insulting to the vacuum, but uh, so it uses uh, straightforward sensors. It doesn't map where it's going, and it's randomly driving around. Great introductory price. Uh, great for testing. Uh, there's a major pitfall I have with that is I have to empty the container that mm-hmm. it vacuums up, which is on the machine itself. Yeah. It's small, so I have to do it every day. It's got like two filters, sure. which is another consumable, which is another thing that grinds my gears is filters. Um, so I'm looking to get a um, another uh, vacuum cleaner that actually empties into its own container, and I can empty that container like once a month. Yeah, as a new lo- series of uh, vacuums. That's, that's cool. Wow, it is that's... cool. So and it's kind of like the the bagless style too. So mm-hmm. I just take the whole tray up and dump it into the yeah. bag, which is great. Uh, but the drawback is at that level of uh, technology. Yeah, uh, they include a bunch of other. Uh, devices on it so it uses lidar for mm-hmm. mapping itself around and wow. it does that's um, absurd man. pattern direction as opposed to randomly driving around yeah uh and then the thing that i'm not overly excited about is the connectivity to the phone so i can define like keep out boundaries of where i want to um keep the robot away from not vacuum under um also scheduling all the fancy whistles yeah. within a connected connected device but it's another thing in my house that connects to a server that gets back to my phone. And those steps I don't have full control over. I've got control over the device in my house connected to the Wi-Fi. But the connection through its server and then what's stored right. there and then the connectivity back, these are all things that I'm not super excited for. Right, I don't right. really con- care about much about. And partly because we've been uh, I've been talking to a, a bunch of groups about uh, security and manufacturing. Mm-hmm. And I've been using the Verizon breach report, which we'll link in the show notes, as kind of the benchmarking for what's going on in manufacturing. So they cover a bunch of different sectors. Yes. And they actually collect data on actual breaches within those sectors, which is super useful. And they also work with FBI if there's significant uh, breaches. Uh, so keep that in mind, too. If you do get breached, you should contact uh, a local police agency to see if there's help in resolving yes, that breach. Absolutely. Uh, but the main thing, the big takeaway from the report is on the manufacturing side. Uh, let's see. C-level executives are 12 times more likely to be targeted. Now, what that means is they're getting fished or they're getting social media <laughs> um, scammed. 
to yeah. get their logins, then they can have access to all the backend information. Well, I mean, we're talking about C-suite level employees. Sure. The people who barely know how to open a PDF. <laughs> and they probably shouldn't be opening PDFs. And they should not be opening certainly <laughs> sketchy PDFs or zip files. Which is another thing that kind of ground my gears for using email as the be-all, end-all for all communication. Send me a link. Send me a link to like a OneDrive or a SharePoint. Yeah. Don't embed files. That's that's and old school. I would even argue that I bet you it's not even the C-level employees being targeted more than the rest of the employees. Sure. I'm sure the targeting is equal. Like these they, uh, like these people who are sending out phishing emails. Right. Just they they, they just want to hit as many people as possible. Sure. It's just they the C-level are probably the more susceptible. <laughs> they probably don't know what to do when they see that stuff. Yeah. Anyway. Um. Yeah, you just mentioned a whole lot of stuff, including like home IoT yeah. and, and and all this sort of like automation integration in a vacuum cleaner. And outrageous. I still can't get over the fact that you have or are looking at a vacuum cleaner with a LIDAR. In it. <laughs> That's crazy, isn't it? I, I just want to say that I prefer manual vacuuming. <laughs> like I like a good yeah, 18,000 sure. RPM spindle <laughs> Dyson. Yep. And using my own hands, my own two hands. <laughs> Way to keep it old school, Steve. I feel like I do a better job than yes. any programmable yeah. vacuum cleaner. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but, like, it must be nice to, like, just go to work and, you know, you've got Amelia goes to yeah. school, yep. Deepa goes to work. Yep. And the thing, the house cleans itself that's, almost. That's one of the funny part about automation. So I've got a home security system, too. Uh, so I have a bunch of windows. The way I have it set up in the living room where the vacuum cleaner is is with motion sensors. Mm-hmm. So if it detects motion, then it'll set off the alarm. Yeah, yeah. There's yeah. a concern that I read line uh, that I've read about of the heat generated from the vacuum cleaner is enough to trigger the motion sensor. So that's one of the tricky parts about automation. Is, the heat generated from the vacuum cleaner. Yeah, because it's got motors and things right. like that, and it's moving. So it's enough to. Wait, you have thermal cameras in your house? No, no, not thermal cameras. Oh. It's like infrared motion sensors. Okay. Like the ones you'd see on your light okay. switch, oh, except gotcha. it's connected to your security system. So if it detects any kind of heat motion. It'll set off the man. Then that's a bad. That's interesting. So I didn't want to test it, so I have it triggered at night uh-huh. at eleven forty-five, which is fine because normally we'll sleep by then. Yeah. But sometimes we're watching a movie and I have to forget that it go that it's gonna go off at that time. Oh, into so you can movie, trip your own stuff. We're into the scene, into the movie, and then all of a sudden you hear this loud burn. <laughs> the vacuum cleaner starts going off. It scares the hell out of both of us. <laughs> I have to go to the bathroom. <laughs> So this it's, one, it, it's just trying to uh, execute some uh, lights out manufacturing. Lights out, <laughs> lights out, lights out cleaning. <laughs> yeah. Almost there. I think we're almost there. That's cool though. It, it well, you, you're never gonna you're never gonna get there, right? If you don't experiment and try to implement it now. That's the key. Just, just somebody's got to do it yep. to get it developed and working right. Need to test it. So like when I'm finally getting into <laughs> home automation, I'm gonna look at you and say, like, "How is everything working perfectly at your place?" And it's like Steve. I did this 20 years ago. <laughs> exactly. That's when I started. I've gone through 20 devices that are in the trash can. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of which, tell me about the test bed. How, what's going on this week? Oh, man. Last week? Uh, so last week, we did some finishing. I did my third iteration of finishing this brass, uh, getting a sweet service finish, getting rid of like the gumminess. And it's not perfect. It's decent. Um, but it looks so much better than Good. all of my other attempts. So we, I've made it a long way. Yeah. Um, you know, I got the step over right. Okay. Um, there, there's a few flaws here and there, but the flaws actually look really pretty. Okay. And that's the idea, because at the end of the day, I'm making a watch dial. Sure. And, you know, you don't, you know, with watchmaking, it's like this is a handmade piece <laughs> or whatever. That's like at least what the Swiss do. 
and you know the, you, you embrace flaws like like you know it's at the end of the day it's jewelry and you right. know good diamonds good good emeralds stuff like that they have flaws in them that only nature could create that's how i'd like to feel about this brass dial it's sure. got some flaws in it and it's just it's just the nature of trying to mill brass sure. yeah. I've, I've spoken to a good amount of people now that have given me a lot of tips and advice on milling brass right. and like, like watchmakers they all say you don't venture below twenty thousand rpm um and your feed has to be crazy slow and then another person, um, Sam Steele out of Lidos, who visits the test bed every now and then, he's like, yeah, we don't even mill brass. Right. If we have to cut brass, we turn it on a lathe. You can't mill it. <laughs> sure. It, it, like this guy who's working at an like a huge defense contractor, industrial manufacturing plant. Sure. He said, you can't mill brass. Right. The Swiss would disagree with that. <laughs> and now I would. But it was tough to get here. Sure. Sure. Um, and I'm really proud of how far I've made it. Good. So the next steps are, um, of course, cutting the indices. Okay. I'm really looking forward to that this week. Good. I'm so looking forward to putting in like two large hatch marks, uh, tick marks at 12 o'clock. And then I'm going to put a single large uh, tick mark, one one single large tick mark at three, six, and nine. Okay. Um, and then s- smaller single hatch marks at uh you know, one, two, uh, four, five, seven, eight, and then uh, ten and eleven. So by uh, smaller, to, to cover the dial. Yeah. Uh, so now we'll have the dial will have a chapter ring. Okay. And you'll be able to tell the time once uh, the hands are on it and it's nice. in the watch. Um, and then you have to part it off, right? Or did you do it? Parting off? Uh, no, it hasn't because it's got. It, we're not done cutting it yep. yet. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm more confident in being able to cut these indices and making okay. them look really nice because. Going back to the surface finish, um, the surface finish, it starts to get ever so slightly gummy towards the edge, the outer oh, edge okay. of the dial. Mm-hmm. So the indices are going to actually make it look a lot cleaner. Okay. It's going to hide some of the blemishes on the the outside of the dial. Cool. The center of the dial, which is you know your focal point on right. the dial, is so clean and beautiful. Good. And it starts to fade to... <laughs> To kind of fuzzier, gummier. That's the nature of it. Finish, and, and yeah, I think that adds it, it adds that natural look. Sure. Um, but the parting out. Once these indices are done, of course, we got to part it out, and right. you're going to bring in a heat gun for me. Yep. And that's what I'm worried about, like, because the the dial, the brass is on there. Right. In the work hold, the Delrin work holding, which was cut to fit that brass plate perfectly, and then I used uh, um, some Loctite super glue gel to adhered the uh to, to 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 fix the brass plate onto the um the delrin soft jaw um it's on there yeah. like i i did a few tests to see right. like how secure it was and i was like i don't know how secure it is so i'm gonna tread lightly and fortunately treading lightly le- yielded a really clean surface finish right but now that i've done so much cutting on this brass <laughs> dial it's like i've realized that thing is stuck on there, <laughs> and now I'm concerned about damaging this dial trying to get it off. Maybe. You it's still run. We could always melt it off if we need to. Yeah, that's true. But That's good. We'll see. Yeah. That's that's, really that's going to be the next trial and tribulation of I'm this I'm excited dial. to see that. And then we're going to get to some hand assembly, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. Then then, yeah. then the uh, watch has to be put together, which yeah. really doesn't involve the test bed at all. I'm probably no. going to have Russ do that, and I'll try to take pictures as he does it because he took it apart in the first yeah. place. Yeah, let's get Russ to do some actual work around here. <laughs> but I think it might be useful because we're going to talk about some hand tools later on to mm-hmm. kind of document that procedure. Yes. 
And I think that's a kind of a gap in the industry where we're headed is, you know, everyone's focused on machines and being able to pull data off these automated machines. But what happens when the humans involved now? How are right. we making sure that the data is collected? And part of that is uh, I'm getting a deck installed in our back and just thinking about, uh, you know, uh, how um, manual a lot of processes in manufacturing still are and a gap that we're kind of missing in that in that space. So it was just a thought that popped in my mind. Yeah. No, you got to think about the hand tools. Uh, so the first topic I was going to talk about today is machine learning and supply chain. Mm-hmm. That's another area that we don't discuss much about is supply chain, which right. all of manufacturing is basically involves a supply chain. You're receiving Absolutely. orders, you're sending out orders, getting people to do work on your behalf. So you have your own supply well, chain. Well, you can certainly talk better on that than I can. Yeah. I haven't yeah. experienced supply chain yet. Yeah. So I've been a member in supply chain and mm-hmm. also purchase parts. You're basically a middleman if you're a manufacturer at some point. Okay. Either it's just raw material. Uh, so you're going to receive order and you have to buy raw material. Even the tooling, you got to buy consumable tooling and all that stuff. So one thing that uh, BASF and IBM are working together on is um, uh, Supply Chain Chain Digital uh, website has an article on machine learning, innovation, technology within supply chain. Uh, It's an okay title. It's not clickbaity, which I like nowadays. It's pretty straightforward, more like a research paper type title. Um, But they have a proof of concept to evaluate how AI and machine learning could be utilized to build more powerful replenishment advisor tool. Uh, so they have this test case where uh, they're connecting their systems to uh, ERP to get patterns on sales, volume strategy, uh, inventory levels, and shipping time uh, uh, using open source machine learning. Uh, so basically, it's they're, they want to we'll, we'll just say automate some of the supply chain side of it is recommending to either the user of, hey, these things are going to run out in a certain amount of time and the lead time is this, so you don't run out. Um, you know, just-in-time manufacturing is all about that to make sure you have the parts when you need it. But we're adding a little buffer with uh, inventory on hand. Uh, and that's one of the drawbacks about supply chain also is you're spending money every time you buy something. So if you don't use it for three months, you spent that money three months before you actually need it. Overhead. Exactly. So you could use that money elsewhere. You could have bought different tooling. You could have bought another company if you're buying that much stuff. Um, so the ability to reduce the cash flow to when it's actually needed uh, helps businesses quite a bit. So I'm curious to see where they're headed with this and see mm. the actual yeah. return on investment back to the industry um, and see what they deliver back to industry if it's just best practices or an actual widget people can embed in their system. Because in the end, they're going to come up with a strategy or how this was implemented. Now you've got to look at how each factory is kind of uh, unique, whether they have their own ERP, own ERP system, their own supply chain, their own data collection within that supply chain, and kind of what's needed to support that level of uh, uh, machine learning. Wow. What was your uh, article about? My article was, uh, the title is, um, Tactile Display Let's Blind uh, Perform 3D Printing and CAD. Nice. So I thought this was so cool. Going back to HMI's um, human machine interface, uh, it, it was just, it was cool, like, so this this control the way the way a blind person would modify their model right. and and design what they want to three D print it looks like do you remember those uh, toys called like pin art sure it was like a a, a pin impressioning right. toy where like you know you could put you could rest this thing yeah. on your face and you'd have like a pin impression yeah. of your face that's what the tool looks like that's and cool. I, and I thought it was just wild um, there's not really much more to it other yeah. than it's a really creative way. 
to a creative take on HMIs right. and just modeling in general. Cause you know, I, I remember, I think it was uh, IMTS 2016 that we went to um, when a lot of HMI companies are going away from a small screen and a keyboard to a full on touch screen. Right. And um, now a lot of car make manufacturers are figuring out how to make touchscreens tactile. Sure. And I think this is like our next step. That's cool. That is a glimpse of the future because mm-hmm. when you look at like movies and uh, people that are predicting what the future looks like. Right. There's not a lot of flat screen displays. There's a lot of volumetric displays. Yeah. Being able to show things in a either hologram that has some depth in real life. And I guess this is a kind of first iteration of being able to. Uh, accurately represent something in the real world. Yeah, that's cool. It's it's wild that you mentioned the you know the the movie predictions of like technology. It's I I love going back and watching like a movie like uh, I think it was Total Recall. <laughs> like they got a few things right sure. and so much wrong. Yeah, it's right. like the future looks at the, the the future of like the room you're in right now right. looks exactly the same. Correct. It's yeah. just there's a few more gadgets here yeah. and there that you did not picture before right. at all in the slightest. Yeah. Maybe a robot comes in here and sure. like cleans up, you know, the crumbs that you dropped yeah. as soon as they hit the floor. Like in Fifth but, Element. But like, yeah, like exactly. Like in Fifth Element. Right. But man, the there's not flying cars. No, no. Yeah. One thing I do will agree with in the future is, uh, oh, I'm sorry, disagree with before we get to that, is in Back to the Future, they talked about the fu- uh, a scene in the, in the future where people are wearing two ties nowadays. Oh I was like, God. that's weird. Nope. And then the other uh, thing I'll agree with is this, the Earth is going to be overpopulated. We're going to be in like uh, scenes where there's eight million people in every single city, and it's gonna yeah, be, yeah. Be what, when are we going to be on Mars? Yeah. Uh, the la- last article I wanted to talk about was uh, uh, data improving airspace. Now this isn't from a technology company; it's from uh, Langshire um, Telegraph. They talked about uh, oh cool uh, engineering a digital solution to aid. Uh, Langshire Airspace. So it's a telegraph within their local manufacturing, which is great. The only thing I didn't really particularly like, like about this is in the first takeaway, oh, well, let's get into that more later, but what they're trying to do is improve the efficiency in machining and canal, which is fairly difficult for them. Yeah. So what they want to reduce the build time from 90 hours to 12 hours. And that's a huge change. Uh, so the, the one thing I didn't like about this article is it talks about going right to digital solutions when mm-hmm. I'd rather see it titled Data Improving Aerospace. Yeah. I mean, that's the foundation of their uh, improvement plan. The technology and the digital solutions are resultants of the data that they've accumulated to figure out what they want to do. Um, so that, that was just my takeaway in this article is that they're using uh, data and d- digital digital tools to kind of predict what the production line will look like, and now they're implementing that process. So on paper, they have a theoretical reduction. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the future, probably I think end of this year, they'll have the machinery in place. So not just that they're implementing data collection, they're doing some level of automation and streamlining their supply chain process also. Yeah. So there's some good takeaways, but I'd rather see more separation in the future from, hey, let's talk about digital, where I did some data collection, I solved this problem. Those are kind of two different scenarios. Right, right. What was the last article you got for today, Steve? Oh, it's not actually not an article. So um, I, I watch a lot of YouTube, of course, and you know <laughs> I watch YouTube before bed. In fact, I often I often fall asleep to it. But anyway, um, in my feed of videos that I might be interested in, one of the one of the channels I actually follow and I'm subscribed to on YouTube is um, Scotty Kilmer. Sure. And are you familiar with Scotty Kilmer? No, not at all. Scotty Kilmer is this career auto mechanic. Okay. 
um, like like he's been a ASC certified mechanic, what have you, cool. forever. And like you'd think he'd be like one of these old guys and like, oh, call, you know, these cars today <laughs> aren't like the way they used to be, where you could fix it yourself in your driveway. Now you need a computer. No, he's like he can work on the old stuff, like a right. uh, you know sixty four and a half Mustang, or he can plug in a laptop and nice. you know do an ECU tune for you. Um, but uh, anyway, what came up was I, I noticed in the th- picture, the thumbnail picture on the video. Um, I think the video is called this changes everything. He's always got the most <laughs> clickbaity titles, but, uh, it was a picture of HRE's, uh, 3d additive titanium wheel. Okay. Like this crazy expensive wheel that like it's, it, it's only a wheel that you would consider buying if you were putting it on something crazy like a McLaren 720 S sure. cause it's that expensive of a wheel. Right. I, one of these wheels might cost as much as my car. Um, <laughs> but anyway, it's a titanium additive wheel. And I watched this video, not so much. I already know about the wheel. I've right. read, I've mentioned it before on the podcast articles talking yep. about this wheel. You you and I, we've bantered back and forth about this wheel at our desks before. Right. Um, what I just wanted to know was, how much does this guy really know about this wheel? Sure. And it's not that right. I don't believe Scotty or, or, or I'm, I'm questioning his intellect. Uh, or But I just want to see, like... Obviously, he's not an additive manufacturing SME. Right. How much does he know about it? And it's a 10-minute video, but he only talks about, like, this this additive wheel for, like, the first one or two minutes. And what I just found wild was, while he's no SME, and he doesn't come off as being an SME for additive, he's certainly a subject matter expert for being, you know, maintaining a vehicle. Right. And what he mentioned was all accurate. And I was actually shocked. Like he, he knew that uh, the type of additive that was used to okay. create such a wheel. Um, some, th- some things he got wrong, but it doesn't really matter. Cause at the end of the day, he said, you know, this, this really isn't a feasible means of manufacturing <laughs> wheels. Right. Um, it's, it's really just, just like the McLaren 720 S that this wheel right. would go on. It's a status symbol ah, it's to say, sure. Hey, this is, pushing the envelope of technology. Yeah. And so he knew enough. And, and what, what this told me was additive really is a mainstay right now. It's, sure. it's not just like, but it's, and I've said this a million times before. It, it, it's not vaporware. It's not a buzzword anymore. Right. This, this is an actual means of manufacturing. That's and while people like Scotty will say that, Oh no, this is, this is still kind of vaporware <laughs> from our standpoint in the industry. It's like, it's made it this far to where a mechanic is talking about it. That's big. That is big. And we're seeing a lot of uh, acceptance in the production world. There's still a lot of, I don't say problems, uh, more like uh, things that didn't be solved in the future to increase throughput. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there are a lot of companies that are figuring out ways to how to figure out ways to implement it as part of their regular production lines. Uh, Automotive and airspace are taking significant steps in that space. Automotive, as in not the rim side, I think that's kind of a jewelry case. Yeah, it's absolutely a jewelry case. But they're exploring different um, ways to improve either fuel efficiency or other things where they can print like plastic parts to help improve the car. Yeah, and airspace is exploring exploring that. And the big thing that they're exploring is the justification of uh, why you'd use additive. So, for example, reducing assembly time, which is good, but the best uh, use case I've seen are improving fuel efficiency or reducing weight to um, absolutely to get your return on investment. Yeah, just just think about. I mean, right now, if you if you compare a car from um the the, the like you know the fifties sixties sure. 
to a tube frame mm-hmm. race car of the 90s or late 80s to a carbon monocoque chassis of uh, a modern race car, whether it's an LMP1 or a Formula One car. Yeah. It's it's come so far. And, you know, the, the carbon, the forged carbon tub of a Formula One car looks nothing <laughs> like, you know, a... a a tube chassis or even like some stamped steel uh car from like the 60s uh it's it's come so far that i think the next step is an additively produced car chassis the Mm -hmm. whole car like no come on let's let's be real and wheels no yeah but if if you for light weighting purposes additive would be the way to go for the chassis itself there are a couple of groups that are exploring that on metal metal additive they're adding uh, metalhead the robots so they can print the entire chassis. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll we'll get into that a little further. That'll yeah, do a little research. That's, man, this is a cool. topic for another yeah. entire podcast episode. So. The last thing I want to talk about today was um, you know the issues with hand tools. Uh, we briefly mentioned earlier. We talked about the HMI. Mm-hmm. Uh, mentioned a little bit on the construction side. Uh, one thing in manufacturing I think we're missing the boat on is the evolution of hand tools, uh, particularly with uh, you know uh, fatigue issues mm-hmm. and human strain. Um, I don't see the same evolution of kind of solving the fundamental problem of protecting the human with these hand tools. You know, we got, um, we just came from the quality show a couple of weeks ago yeah. and we're coming up to FabTech, which has a lot of assembly tools and a lot, some automated with presses and some right. welding equipment, but a fair amount of hand tools also. But well, you know, what's your take on that, Steve? If, first off, my take is um, the Germans are totally spearheading the 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 progression of hand tools when sure. it comes to strict hand tools. Okay. Like you look at German tool, you compare it to American tools are following suit. Okay, like you know if you look at a com- like like Craftsman hand tools, mm-hmm. they're starting to get like plastic grips that are ergonomically shaped. Okay. and with rubber inserts, yep. so you don't you keep your grip. Yep, like we're talking about like um, casual mechanics, sure. not like full-on mechanic casual right. somebody like you or i right if we've got a toolkit we're probably not gonna the first step isn't let's put on nitrile gloves correct you know we're, we're you're gonna use your bare hands right. um so a lot of american tools are following the ergonomics of the german tools that sure. i've seen okay um which have really re- like you look at some of the handles on them and it's mm-hmm. like that looks like it, it looks like you're supposed to grab it and okay. it's going to, and it feels right in the yeah. hand, but man, it does not look like a conventional <laughs> screwdriver. Yeah. Um, also it, you know, you look at the head, the bits on these tools, um, especially like when you hear about a lot of, um, like I said, watch a lot of car YouTube videos. Yep. Um, I watch this one channel that, uh, he claims to be a regular guy <laughs> who daily's a Ferrari. Sure. He bought like a auction Ferrari for yep. like $80,000 one of the, like the first mods when maintaining your own Ferrari mm-hmm. is replacing all of the hex bolts throughout the body and uh, engine bay sure. with Torx bolts. Oh, nice! Because you remove these and put them back in all the time uh, working on your car. Right. And hex bolts do not hold up; they rust out, yep. and you end up stripping them. And then you need to take something like a Dremel <laughs> and cut a sure. slash through it and use a standard uh, a flathead screwdriver right. to remove it. You replace all your hex bolts with torques, sure, because torques just you know it it, it it's in the name. It like fits it, better. And it, it works better. Yeah, you won't strip load. them, right. even if it's cheap Chinese pot metal sure. that the bolt is made out of. If it's big enough, it won't strip. Right. Um, but uh, 
coming away from the casual mechanic standpoint, a lot of hand tools, when if you look in like in a, a factory that requires some hand tools, especially a lot of hand assembly, right. um, it's not like, you know, somebody wheels around a toolbox sure. and wrenches on something. The tools are hanging from a crane. Right. Right. And they're all uh, actuated. Like sure. you don't twist it with your hands. You're wearing gloves. Right. right. Um, and it's something it looks like uh, what what you think is just a wrench or a screwdriver looks like a Dremel. Sure. Um, and it, it is powered. And that, that's what I've seen a lot. That and, is interesting. Cause that, and that stuff's expensive. Cause I mean, that is good expensive. hand tools yeah. are expensive and are untouchable yeah. for a casual mechanic, a right. casual wrencher, let alone a crane with sure. some, some air driven tools. Right. That's yeah. We're never going to see though. You and I yeah. are never going to see those in our own garages. Yeah. And I've seen the self-supported uh, hand tools. And one thing that, a lot of people do glance over that is when you use the hand tool. So say it's like a, um, like a hand grip. So you just squeeze your hand and it activates mm-hmm. something that that's reasonable. You don't have to use excessive force or anything like that, but you still have to react the load. A lot of them are not uh, torque, uh, torque bearing uh, cranes or supports. Yeah. So even though it could be attached to a strain, you still pull it down and you still have to take the small load over and over again. So it's not the fact that, you know, the, it's about 50% of the solution that I would like to see where, the human is still taking a brunt of the load mm-hmm. over and over again. So that that's a fatigue issue that I see that is commonly missed over that. Yeah, we implement a hand tool and yeah, it's supported. Mm-hmm. But who's taking the load in the end? Right? right. That's human is still straining to support that. Yeah. And I do see two technologies coming about. So NASA released this uh, power glove about a couple of years ago. It's okay. not the Nintendo power glove, if you're old <laughs> enough to remember that. Uh, but it's a glove where it's it's got some actuators where I think it's either retracting or compressing the fingers uh, where if you give it a little bit of motion, it pulls it the rest of the way. Yeah. So you don't have to pull the full oh, load. Oh, wow. It helps actuate some of the load, uh, which is interesting. And I do see a lot of exoskeletons coming up nowadays. Uh, we did a little bit of research uh, a couple of months ago, and we're exploring the world of exoskeletons uh, where there's... Caterpillar heavy loaders? Similar. Yeah, very similar, where Man, I've been the load is being... Uh, transmitted to the suit itself which is uh, not quite attached to the floor but being transmitted right in the floor so the human's kind of doing the controlling yeah um which is great uh you see you're seeing that solve a lot of problems where uh you have to lift parts over your head mm-hmm. and things like that but still the human using their fingers and the uh strength of their hand is yeah. still a common problem i see right and we ran into this problem um boeing was very mm-hmm. uh vocal about this problem um when we went to visit them um Man, was that, that was a long time ago. That was ago a while now. ago. Yeah. But uh, I remember the, the the one thing that stuck with me was riveters. Yep. They work in teams of two. Right. And they have to get along because they, they just they sync up. Like yep. they know each other and they know that they need to be on two sides of like a fuselage yep. uh, wall and do the same thing at the exact <laughs> sa- like right time. Sure. And they need to do that over and over again right. until like, you know, the plane is complete. Right. But uh, they, they, I remember the guy, our tour guide mentioned that that job pays a lot because it's really hard on the body. Right. Like not only right. do you need a good rapport with your other riveter, but you're lifting that heavy riveting gun right. and you're holding it in an awkward position for right. over and over again yeah. throughout the day. Yeah. They have so. a lot of health issues coming out of that plant. It's awesome, Steve. This is a great uh, episode. Uh, so for new, 
For more news and research, you can follow me on LinkedIn. And where can they get more info on you, Steve? They can follow me on uh, Adventures of an Amateur Machinist. My blog is swarfysteve.blogspot.com. Awesome. And the link will be in the description below. Take care, everyone. Thanks. Ooh, that heavy bass. <laughs> <laughs>